Hello all, I offer you a warm welcome to another episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that looks at and recounts the usually lesser known and more obscure crimes that the UK has tucked away in its dark recesses. As always, I'm your host Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title, and as ever, I'm thrilled to have you guys join me here today. Thanks very much for that. For any new listeners to the show, hello and welcome, and old hands at this now, well it's great to have you here as always. So is everybody good this week? I am personally, myself. It's especially great to be back doing the show each week. Breaks are all good and necessary, as I said in the last episode, but it is nice to get back into the swing of things. Thank you to all of those who tuned in last week for the premiere of the new series, as well as for all of the new follows, shares and reviews of the show. And I should say as well, for all the kind Patreon supporters who got a bit of an early glimpse at it when I released it on the Sunday, because I was so fed up of editing it and messing about with it, I decided to just put it out there as a bit of a thank you. I must also thank my latest Patreon supporters, that's Vicky London, Ayn Sweeney, Annette Owens, Caroline Dobson, Lydia Sampson, Georgina Rose, and the thin ice skater herself, Lindy Beaumont. Cheers all, your support is very much appreciated, and there is stuff on the way for some, or actually it may even be there by now, and for others, well I hope you've enjoyed the bonus episodes of the show. There are 10 available for anybody interested, and whilst I've been on a break, I've decided on a new feature exclusive for Patreon supporters that you'll be interested to know, I hope. Once a month, I'm going to sit down with my mic, perhaps with a beer or maybe a glass of wine, and I'm going to record myself discussing the month's cases on the show, feedback about them and why I chose them. Now, it'll be mostly unedited, and I'm going to angle in to start that from the beginning of December, so I have a nice few cases from the new series to discuss. Who knows, it may even be in video form too. Watch this space. So for anybody interested in becoming a Patreon supporter of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the link is with my show notes as ever, or you can find me by searching out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site, and it's all very self-explanatory from there. You see the creepy hand? There I am. I'd also like to reinforce that as ever, I love to hear from you guys with suggestions for cases for the show, and even more so if you fancy researching and writing one. There is a listener episode coming up in a couple of weeks, the one that didn't make it into the last series, and I love doing them because I'm a massive believer in paying stuff forward, and writing and researching episodes is how I've said, it's how I got started doing the show that you're listening to today. I'll always be thankful to Adam at the UK True Crime Podcast for the opportunity, He's a hell of a guy, even if he does support Leeds United. Thanks for Cantona, is all I can say there, Adam. And that brings me very nicely onto this week's promo that I'm sharing, although I'm sure it's a show that needs little introduction, really, because the show in this week's promo was actually the second true crime podcast that I ever wrote an episode for, back in June last year, before I started doing The Enthusiast, and it's the first international one that I worked with. Now it was a pleasure to work with these guys then and it's lovely to see their fabulous show go from the strength to strength that it deserves. I shall pass you over to Tyler, Beck and the team at the Minds of Madness. 911, what's your emergency? Every 60 seconds, a person is murdered somewhere in the world. There was a shootout in my house. I can't believe it. What causes ordinary people to do unthinkable things. He stabbed me in my neck. And he says, look how easily I could kill you. The Minds of Madness is a true crime podcast 
that examines the most disturbing criminal minds. We shed a light on the devastating impact these violent crimes have on the victims and their families. When you get calls in the night, you know they're not good or they're wrong numbers. You'll hear about the incredible strength of the survivors and what they did to fight back. I was studying his face because I was thinking, if I get out of this, I'm going to get you someday. Subscribe to the Minds of Madness podcast today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. They really don't need an introduction, those guys, do they? What a fantastic show. If you've never caught them, then where have you been? In the bin? Stop everything and go and enjoy the madness. It's available pretty much everywhere you get your shows from, and it's the same on social media, The Minds of Madness. This week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've covered a crime that was originally going to be one of three cases featured in an episode centering around cold cases that have been solved by advancements in DNA profiling. Now that episode will still go ahead, but I've now put it back to a later date, because I realised that when researching this particular tale, there was more than enough material for an episode all of its own about the case, and it gives me a chance to tell Candice's story properly, with the attention that she deserves. The case this week deals with a horrific sex crime that resulted in the murder of a teenage girl, a family having to suffer the most unimaginable tragedy for the second time in as many months, and a killer who evaded justice for the crime for many years. The episode deals with the murder of a young girl, and so contains descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion as always. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we go back to 1978 to look at the case of the Riley House Tower Block murder. Ever since Dr Alec Jeffries had his eureka moment on the 10th of September 1984 and discovered that each individual has a unique DNA characteristic, which led to the development of DNA profiling, it's closed many a murder case. It's an ever-improving branch of science that now has even branched into familial DNA profiling, where an unknown killer can now be identified from a sample taken from a member of this shared family bloodline. Golden State killer, anybody? Even crimes that have remained unsolved for many years can now be closed. Testing is that good and painstaking, and it truly is a marvel. So I'm not going to waffle on about what crime scene investigators can get DNA from or how they test it, You're listening to a true crime podcast, for God's sake. I'm not going to teach you to suck eggs. But of course, before Dr. Jeffrey's discovery and development of DNA profiling, a killer could remain undetected, even if police did recover his or her blood, semen or hair from the scene. Comparison could be made, but the science wasn't quite there to nail it down as much as today. It was more a case of painstaking police work and knocking on doors. Sadly, there still remains many unsolved cases where there's little or no chance of the killer being detected due to the evidence being of poor quality or even lost or destroyed. The callous and horrific murder of a Birmingham schoolgirl in 1978 may have also remained one of these cases had it not been for the forward thinking of a forensic scientist at the time. Erdington is a suburb of the UK city of Birmingham in the Midlands. 
Birmingham being the second most populated city in the UK after London, and personally I think one that's on par with London as being the worst place to drive on earth ever. I'd rather try to stuff a pineapple up my nose than willingly drive in either place ever again. I've not done either for many years, and that isn't long enough. Famous people from Erdington include HBO talk show host John Oliver, who was born there, legendary insane motor racing commentator Murray Walker, and one half of the professionals, Doyle himself, Martin Shaw. I may be proper show my age here, but what a fantastic intro that show had. Candice Williams was born in Erdington on the 20th of June 1965, the second youngest daughter of five children born to West Indian couple Robert and Marcia Williams. She was a slender, happy girl, well-liked and popular, and one who loved her family pets and reggae music, which I can't abide myself personally. Candice also, along with her sisters Wendy and Regina, was fastidious about following the latest trends putting posters of 70s idols on her bedroom wall and wearing the latest fashions, taking care to always dress the part and wearing her hair in a distinctive Afro-style bush. The Williams family was a happy close one, but that year it was blighted by tragedy when Candice's mother died at the end of May 1978 after a long illness, just before Candice's 13th birthday. This devastated each member of the family, and they pulled even more together following this tragic loss, and became closer, doing lots to help each other through the grief. That family unit was shortly to be shattered again in a way that none of them could have ever suspected. During the summer holidays of 1978, the morning of Monday the 24th of July found Candice and her siblings at home in Montpellier Road in Erdington. After a lunch of fish and chips, Candice and her sisters Wendy and Regina went out to call on some friends of theirs, and they left home at about 12.30pm. As always, Candice made sure that she was suitably dressed and, like teenage girls still do to this day, made sure that she looked older than her years. She looked through her wardrobe and chose a favourite blue t-shirt with a ship motif on, a brown skirt and black and white plimsolls. On top of this, due to it being a warm day, she placed on a thin navy blue cardigan and set off with the sisters. By 2pm they'd called at number 26 Dallas Road to collect two friends of theirs, making them now a party of five, and the group headed off to the Perry Common Recreation Ground a local playground and large recreational park about two miles in total from Montpellier Road. This is a large, sprawling park that's split by a main road and it attracted kiddies for its play park, families for picnics and dog walking and it was a place for the older youth's recreation to smoke, have a drink and generally do what you do as a youngster. However, sometime in the next 90 minutes after the group had arrived there just after 2pm, an argument erupted between the girls which led to Candice leaving the rest of them and storming off in a bit of a strop, saying that she was going home. She left the park and headed off back into the direction of Montpellier Road. Now if she was, as stated, heading home, there are two ways out of the park that Candice could have left by. One is a footpath leading onto Perry Common Road and the other leads into a road just off this bleak hill road. Google Maps shows an arcade of shops at the top junction where these two roads meet. Whichever way she went and left the group, 
The girl's watching her leave was the last time that Candice was seen alive by anyone who knew her. Sometime shortly afterwards, she met her killer. By the time Wendy and Regina got home at tea time, there was no sign of Candice at home. Now at first they thought little of this. Perhaps she'd ran into a friend or gone to another friend's house on the way back. Perhaps she just wanted some time to herself to cool down. But when it got later and later, with no sign or word from her, they began to get worried. Bearing in mind that recent upset that Candice had had after the loss of her mother, and thinking that she may just be being rebellious and staying out late without telling anyone, as you do when you're a teenager, her father Robert was angry at first, but this soon gave way to worry. Finally, after ringing around her closest friends to no avail, and her sisters and brother Boris going out retracing the steps back to the park to search for her. Eventually, Robert Williams contacted police and reported Candice as a missing person. Now, I can't begin to imagine how frightening something like that must be, a missing child, and I sincerely hope that anybody listening has or never has to experience that. It must just be an absolutely awful feeling. Your heart must just be in your mouth. Can't even begin to imagine it. It's now the following afternoon, Tuesday the 25th of July. About 500 yards from the Perry Common Recreation Ground, just off Bleak Hill Road, is Riley House, a 12-storey block of flats. It still stands to this day, and in 1978, most of these flats were occupied by elderly residents, with a lift system that allowed them to access the first 11 floors. The 12th floor contained the lift mechanism, and beyond that was the roof of the block of flats. Now this floor and the roof beyond it was only accessible by means of a staircase. At about 2.40pm on Tuesday the 25th of July, Arthur Poulton, a 64-year-old resident of a 12th floor flat in the block, decided to perform a check on the staircase leading to the roof. He was a concerned resident of the block and he tried to keep it as tidy as possible, clearing up litter that accumulated and sometimes having to shoo off kids who were up to no good, courting couples who were using the top floor as a love nest, shall we say, and homeless people who periodically slept rough on the stairway landings. What Arthur Poulton found was infinitely worse than he could have ever imagined, and it certainly wasn't a sleeping down and out. It also made the growing fears of a family of five who lived just two miles away a stark and sad reality. Sprawled on the landing of the staircase was the body of a young West Indian girl, hardly more than a child. The clothing of the girl was in disarray, and it was clear that there were no signs of life. Mr Poulton immediately turned round and went back to his flat, where he called the emergency services to attend the scene. Before long, the area was sealed off, and a police officer was stood guard over the body, awaiting the arrival of a police doctor to officially confirm the girl's death. This was done at 4.30pm, with the doctor noting that rigour had set into each limb and in his opinion she'd been dead for more than 12 hours, possibly closer to 18. A check of police reports that had come in through the night told police that they most likely already knew the tragic girl's identity without too much of an appeal, and a tentative phone call was made. After the body had been photographed in situ, it was then taken to the Birmingham Central Mortuary, where later that same evening, the agonised father, Robert Williams, 
had to endure his second devastation in the space of two months following the death of his wife. Following the earlier phone call, Robert had to go and identify the body found in the top stairwell of Riley House as that of his second youngest daughter, Candice. After she'd been identified, a home office pathologist carried out an autopsy which revealed that Candice had been savagely sexually assaulted and ligature marks on her neck revealed that she had then been strangled with what looked like two different ligatures one being one of her own shoelaces, which was found removed from her shoe and left near the body, and also with what was thought to be the sleeve of her own cardigan. Samples taken from the body were examined by experts at the Birmingham Home Office Forensic Laboratory, and the presence of human semen was detected. Hairs were also found on the body, which was studied with the aid of a comparison microscope, which enables the user to identify minute differences between two images. In this way, hairs from any suspect who came to light in the course of the investigation could be closely compared with those found at the crime scene. An examination of a sample from the suspect could detect any differences in colour and overall morphology, which would enable forensic scientists to narrow any suspect list down by process of elimination. Forensic examination of Candice's stomach contents revealed the potato material from a final lunch of fish and chips but the examining pathologist also discovered fragments of a fleshy yellow fruit there too, later determined as being the remains of a peach. Meanwhile, while the autopsy was being carried out, a forensic examination of the stairway landing where Candice was found was underway, and a search of the Riley House block and surrounding areas was also being carried out. The examination provided investigators with their first lead in the case. Human pubic hairs were found in the stairwell, matching those recovered from Candice's body. A pair of knickers had been found on the 8th floor stairwell earlier that morning that were recovered and found to belong to Candice. Also in undergrowth a short distance from the block, the remains of Candice's pink underslip were found, which were seized and taken for examination. These two all revealed traces of the killer's semen. A team of up to 60 police officers worked out of a murder incident room that was set up at Erdington Police Station and immediately launched a massive murder inquiry. Whilst the family liaison team were dispatched to comfort and interview the devastated Williams family, a large number of intensive house-to-house -house inquiries were carried out in the Erdington district. Street questionnaires and vehicle checks were all carried out and a comprehensive scrutinised check on all known local sex offenders was also undertaken. The local press also jumped on this and cooperated by mounting a massive blanket of reporting on the case and radio and TV appeals for information were also widespread. As much as possible about Candice's life and friendships was looked at in an attempt to reveal anyone who had a grudge against her or wished her any harm, but nothing or no one was revealed through this. Candice was just a happy, jolly child who got on well with everybody. No one was found to have any reason to even dislike her, let alone want to rape and strangle her. But was it possible that Candice knew her killer? No one in the Riley House block reported hearing or seeing any signs of struggle or any screams either the day Candice disappeared or the day that the body was discovered, and no one reported seeing a young girl being forced struggling into the block off the road, so did she go there with a killer quite willingly? 
Yet everybody who knew Candice was spoken to in the initial days of the inquiry, and all were ruled out. It seemed that investigators' greatest fear that this was a random sex killing committed by a stranger was the most likely scenario, and a killer with no relationship to the victim is always, of course, that much harder to crack. More than one detective considered the possibility that the dreaded Yorkshire Ripper, who was still at large at the time, and indeed was moving into the most prolific stage of his murderous career, had expanded his territory even further. But this was quickly discounted as the method of killing was different to the previous Ripper attacks. Rather, police swiftly came to believe that this was a local man responsible. The location where Candice's body was found would only be known as a private area to someone with good local knowledge, familiar with the block, and they were sure that through due process, they would come face to face with their killer. As police appeal posters containing a school photograph of Candice blanketed the Erdington area, a blanket of real fear hung over the community, and families kept a protective eye on their children, which was difficult with the weekends of course, and of course it was the summer holidays from school that were in full swing. Now without sounding like a decrepit old-timer here, it seemed to be a different time back then. I know that I certainly used to go off with my friends roaming around the area or at the house for hours at a time when I was 13, even a lot younger than that. Sadly, you could never dream of letting your kids out like that now, could you? Yet the threat isn't a new one. It's always been there. We're just sadly more widely aware of it now. Names such as Candice Williams, Sophie Hook, Jamie Bulger remind us of how safe it really isn't for our children today. With pressure to catch the killer because of a scared and shaken community, the investigation continued. One of the senior investigating officers, Detective Superintendent Thomas Banks, said at the time, It's a painstaking process of elimination. It's like a jigsaw and you're building a picture piece by piece. Even negative lines of inquiry help towards finishing that picture because they eliminate suspects and sometimes reveal new lines of inquiry. Three of these suspects were three youths who'd been seen near the recreation ground at the time the girls were there, but all three were quickly traced and eliminated from the inquiry. But the most crucial appeal police had had stemmed from what was found in the contents of Candice's stomach. She'd definitely eaten a peach just before she died, but none of the girls that she'd been with, her sisters or her friends, had had any or remembered Candice having any that day when she'd been with them. The Williams family didn't have any peaches at home, so Candice had to have eaten it after she'd left the other girls, and of course, before she was murdered. A local greengrocery ran a shop named the Golden Cross Grocery Store on Turf Pits Lane, just a hundred yards from Perry Common Park, came forward following the appeal to report that on the day of the murder, late in the afternoon, he'd sold two peaches to a smartly dressed young man who had called into the shop. He was described as being white, aged about 20 years old, short-haired and clean-shaven, and being well-spoken. Crucially, the shopkeeper had noticed that waiting for the man outside was a young West Indian girl, that he was now sure was Candice. He watched as the pair walked off together in the direction of Bleak Hill Road, just off which was Riley House. The shopkeeper had likely seen Candice and her killer. But despite the intense inquiry to find this man, the days slowly turned to weeks, then to months, and he still wasn't found. By the time December 1978 had arrived, 
the investigating team had taken close to a thousand written statements, they'd carried out more than two and a half thousand individual interviews, and had seen and spoken to more than seven thousand people in the Erdington area, but no arrests had been made. Without a lack of credible leads or decent suspects, the investigation stalled and it was soon wound down. Crime, sadly, doesn't wait around, does it? By the time two years had passed, it seemed that Candice's murder was destined to be one of the many sad cold cases that the UK has in its history. And then, in 1980, there was rife speculation that Candice's killer had attacked again. There were two vicious rapes of young girls in the Erdington area, and of course, because of the area that they occurred in, press speculation was rife that these were connected to the as-yet unsolved death of Candice Williams. It was found later that these crimes actually had no connection whatsoever to Candice's murder, and a separate man was later charged and convicted of these offences. But the attacks did lead to a fresh flurry of activity and publicity in Candice's unsolved case and the resulting press reports did lead to a new witness coming forward, a woman who'd sat on crucial information and suspicions for the past two years. She now decided to go to police with her story. On the 21st of November 1980, a woman named Pamela Sambrook came forward with a story about her former partner, a 21-year-old painter and decorator named Patrick Joseph Hassett, who lived in Dalton Road, about half a mile from the murder scene. She said that a day or two after the report of the report of Candice's murder, Hassett came around to his then-girlfriend Pamela's flat. He had scratch marks on his neck that she attributed to cat scratches, although he claimed to have received them after being roughed up for the police following his arrest a couple of days before for the attempted theft of a vehicle. He'd also shaved off his prominent moustache, which he habitually wore proudly. It soon became obvious that he was angling for an alibi for the time of Candice's murder. Hassett claimed that police investigating the murder would be coming to see Pamela, and that he wanted her to back up his story that he'd been with her at the time of the murder. Although she was frightened of him because he was known to be violent towards women, she told him that she would under no circumstances lie to save him. On the 3rd of August 1978, Hassett had been interviewed during the extensive house-to-house inquiries as part of the Candice Williams inquiry, as he was a male who lived very close to the murder scene. Police had discovered that in the early hours of Monday the 24th of July, the day of the murder, Hassett had been arrested whilst drunk and had been charged with the attempted theft of a lorry. According to his own account given in his interview on the 3rd of August, Hassett claimed that he'd left Thornhill Road Police Station after being charged and bailed on the Monday morning and then went to visit his solicitors in the city centre before arriving home at about 3pm. He claimed to have then slept until about 5pm when he then left his house to try to find his girlfriend Pamela Sambrook who lived nearby. He was unsuccessful in doing this as she wasn't home so he returned back to his home again briefly before heading out of the house again. Hassett claimed to have then gone straight to the Witten Public House in Aston, where he stayed until 9pm playing pool with three unknown Irishmen who were also drinking in the pub. He then left the Witten alone and headed over to another pub, the Stockland in the Birmingham district of Stockland Green, where he'd met up with two acquaintances of his, two brothers, John and Jimmy Malone. 
The three men had stayed here until 11pm when Hassett had left and returned home and gone to bed. He'd slept off his drinking session until 2pm the next day before going to see Pamela Sandbrook at 3pm. Although Hassett's account of his movements had so many holes in it that it looked like a giant moth had scoffed up his story, it wasn't followed up as he was not an immediate suspect in the case. This is despite Hassett having a previous conviction for indecently assaulting two children seven years before, when he was aged just 12 years old. It's possible that at the time, before the computerised record systems that we all take for granted nowadays, that this previous conviction was missed buried in a file index somewhere. It would take a couple of years and the capture of the Yorkshire Ripper to highlight the dangers of too much paperwork and an unorganised filing system and do something about it. But two years after interviewing and clearing Hassett as a suspect, armed with the information from his now ex-girlfriend Pamela, police now took a fresh look at Patrick Hassett. The samples of semen taken from Candice Williams' body showed that she'd suffered a savage sexual assault. The official autopsy recorded signs of rape or consensual violent sex. Like she's going to be 13, eh? By establishing the killer's blood group from the semen found at the scene, and by testing for one of ten different forms of an enzyme found in blood, investigators should have been able to eliminate nine out of ten suspects, had they had any in the first place. But unfortunately, the swab traces in the Candice Williams case were sparse, and those that police had were contaminated with extraneous matter. Dr Nicholas Prance, who had headed up the forensic team examining the crime scene evidence from Riley House, and who seemed to be very far-sighted and confident in development in scientific DNA testing, decided to retain the samples on ice until more sophisticated testing evolved. It was within the next 10 years that DNA testing would enable forensic scientists to make a breakthrough identification which was totally impossible in 1978. It was just 6 years later that Dr Alec Jeffries at the University of Leicester made his miraculous breakthrough and discovered that with almost complete certainty microscopic samples of biological material could be linked with one particular person due to their unique individual genetic code the genesis of DNA profiling. As a result of Pamela Sandbrook's statement, Patrick Hassett was arrested on the 3rd of December 1980 and samples of his body hair and saliva were taken by a police surgeon. His hair samples were compared with those found at the scene of Candice's murder. While there were microscopic differences between both samples, there were also enough similarities for him to remain a decent, although not at the time, conclusive suspect but as there was no further corroborating evidence at the time, he was released without charge. Hassett dropped off police radar for a while after this, but by 1983 he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment for an assault after he dragged a woman into his car and assaulted her. He was released the following year and found employment as a builder's labourer in nearby Tamworth, but soon afterwards he brutally assaulted a 12-year-old girl in an appalling sexual attack. He'd once again snatched the lone female into his van, but was caught when a passerby heard the child's screams from the vehicle and made a note of the registration number. Hassett was easily traced after this, and he was arrested and charged with the offence. He stood trial for the attack early in 1985, where on the 28th of February he was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment at Stafford Crown Court. 
This new conviction brought the focus back onto Hassett as a suspect in the murder of Candice Williams, which was still unsolved and remained officially inactive. And the conviction had come, of course, after the discovery that each individual's DNA was unique to that person. Nearly five months after his imprisonment for the Tamworth sex attack, Hassett was visited at Shrewsbury Prison by West Midlands detectives and interviewed in connection with Candice's murder. He angrily denied any involvement in the offence and was uncooperative during the interview. As a convicted criminal is in the custody of the Home Office following imprisonment, not the police, as a result police can only request, but not demand, intimate body samples such as blood, hair and saliva for any forensic analysis. Of course, today this information is all retained on the National DNA Database, but back in 1985 this was many years off. DNA profiling was in its proper infancy, and it was to be another three years before Colin Pitchfork became the first killer to be convicted on the strength of DNA profiling. There's an episode of the first series of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast that covers the Pitchfork case, Code of a Killer, if anyone is interested and unfamiliar with that one. At that time, only when the prisoner was in police custody could samples be taken, by force if they were refused, and then it could only be head hair that was taken by a police surgeon. Hassett wasn't arrested, he was just interviewed at this time. So on the 5th of July 1988, some three years later, Detective Chief Inspector Ernest Robinson and Detective Inspector Peter Higgins of West Midlands Police visited Hassett at Wakefield Prison. Monster Mansion itself as it's known because of the high-profile British criminals that it holds and scumbags such as Roy Whiting, Harold Shipman, Michael Sams and Levi Belfield are just a few of the names that have all passed through there at some point. For the past three years since they'd last spoken to him, police had been quietly convinced that the man responsible for Candice's murder was at the time incarcerated for another horrific sex crime. The officer's visit in 1988 was for the purpose of obtaining samples from Hassett that could be used for DNA profiling. Following the developments in testing that had only a short time before seen Colin Pitchfork put away for life. Now as news of important advancements in forensic science also travels fast within the criminal world, even in the confines of prison, the arrest and conviction of Colin Pitchfork and the means by which he was convicted, his DNA code, was now widely known, and Hassett was well aware of his vulnerability in a DNA profile matchup. He was also conversant with the rules of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984 regarding the powers that police had inside prisons so he subsequently refused to give any intimate samples to the officers and instead requested legal advice. The following day, in the presence of a solicitor, Hassett once again refused to provide any samples. The hands of the police were tied here and there was nothing they could do except wait out Hassett's prison sentence, where he could be rearrested when he was released. On the 20th of February 1991, that was my 13th birthday, actually. Patrick Hassett was released from Wakefield Prison, his sentence completed allowing to time off for remission. His freedom, however, lasted all of mere moments, because he was met at the gates of Wakefield Prison by Detective Chief Inspector Robinson and D.I. Higgins. Perhaps he hoped that they would just let it go after so many years, but no, Hassett was rearrested and told he was being taken to Erdington Police Station where he'd be requested to supply the intimate samples that he'd refused to give nearly three years earlier. 
If he refused, head hair could be taken by force if necessary. After consultation with the solicitor, Hassett refused once again to give the intimate samples of saliva or blood, claiming to have an allergy to needles, but he did agree to head hair samples being taken, which the police surgeon duly took. He likely knew he didn't have much choice in the matter, to be honest. These samples were then forwarded to the Birmingham Forensic Science Laboratory for DNA profiling. In accordance with the rules dictated by Pace, Hassett had to then be bailed, but was due to surrender to his bail at 10am on the morning of 14th March 1991. The hair samples were once again processed in Birmingham, and this proved to be a painstaking task, matching the hair sample with a profile from the original swabs. In part, this was because of the low quality and indeed sparseness of the originals, and partly because the taking of DNA profiles from a sample of hair is much more difficult than taking it from a bog-standard blood sample. As DNA profiles are matched by lining up sequences of dark bands that appear on X-ray film to see if any of them coincide, scientists examining Hassett samples and comparing them against the original sample from 1978 managed to achieve a matching that gave the statistical probability of someone other than Hassett being the rapist and killer of Candice Williams as 1 in 3,200. Now that number based on his original statement, his proximity to the murder scene at the time, his moth-eaten alibi and his subsequent criminal record would impress me enough personally, but it would not have been good enough as evidence in a court of law, so further work was carried out to try to increase the odds to a point where the CPS would say, right, that's good enough, game on, let's have this shy-talk nailed down. The first technique used on Hassett samples had been of a type known as a multi-locus probe, but a different, more advanced technique, known as a single-locus probe, was now used. It eventually produced odds of about 1 in 12,000 that anyone other than Hassett could have produced the semen on the original swabs taken from Candice's body. Based on this evidence, when to the surprise of officers who had actually bet each other the cost of a steak dinner that he would have gone on the lamb, Patrick Hassett surrendered to his bail on time, 10am on the 14th of March 1991. He was then charged with the murder of Candice Williams. Hassett began to shake uncontrollably when he told he was being charged, and he was remanded in custody to await trial. Detective Chief Inspector Ernie Robertson admitted later, I think he took a big gamble and surrendered. He thought we were bluffing, but we finally had the evidence to charge him with murder, and he was shocked rigid. Hassett's trial for the murder of Candice Williams began on the 3rd of March 1992 at Birmingham Crown Court, where he pleaded not guilty to a murder. The DNA evidence that tied Hassett to the murder proved both conclusive and compelling to the jury as expert Mark Webster, with the use of a video setup with overhead camera, explained in a clear and confident manner the nature of the tests, how they were performed, and how the results were interpreted. The defence's expert witness began by challenging the validity of the DNA evidence, but was fighting a losing battle based on the strength of the evidence of the prosecution and the commanding way Webster had testified. The expert defence witness was so resoundingly beaten that he ended up finally admitting that based on the evidence, it looked as if Hassett was guilty. With defence experts such as that, where's my cousin Vinny when you need him, eh? Two utes, two what? Two utes? 
On the 18th of March 1992, after a mere couple of hours' deliberation, Patrick Joseph Hassett was found guilty by a majority verdict of 10 to 2 of the murder of Candice Williams on the 24th of July 1978, and he was sentenced to the customary term of life imprisonment by Mr Justice Brooke, convicted by evidence from his own body, something he couldn't ultimately deny or escape from. He was ordered to serve a minimum tariff of 15 years imprisonment before he could be considered for release on parole. The Secretary of State later set this term at 17 years, but it was reviewed later and determined to be 15 years, minus the year Hassid spent on remand whilst awaiting trial. So the wheels of justice had turned slowly for Robert Williams and Candice's brothers and sisters, but they had turned, and after 14 years, Patrick Hassett faced that justice catching up with him. After Hassett was jailed, Candice's still broken and grieving father Robert thanked the police and forensic science services for their persistence in finding her killer, telling the Birmingham Evening Mail, I thank the officers for working so long and hard to catch the man who killed my daughter. I've spent days, weeks, months and years wondering who killed her. I even wondered if it was one of my friends. My entire family has rallied around. Birmingham forensic scientists who painstakingly analysed the samples were also praised, with a special commendations going to Dr Nicholas France, the expert head in the city laboratory when Candice was killed, and who'd had the foresight to free samples taken from her body, and Mark Webster, who analysed the fresh samples after Hassett's arrest. He told a reporter for the Birmingham Mail newspaper in 1992, We were very certain in this case, we carried out four tests, and they all pointed to Hassett being the man. And Hassett remains in prison to this day, deemed that much of a threat to the public still, that he's never been considered for release, despite his minimum recommended term long since having passed. A factor which plays largely in this, is that in spite of the evidence, he has never once admitted to his culpability in the murder of Candice Williams, and he continues to deny killing her to this day. He has appealed his conviction also on numerous occasions. Seven years after his conviction for Candice's murder, in May 1999 Patrick Hassett launched a first appeal against the conviction and demanded a retrial, complaining that the DNA evidence that had convicted him in 1992 had been unsafe. He contested that developments in DNA testing had moved forward so fast that results at the time could not be considered reliable by modern standards. But Lord Justice Rose dismissed the appeal and said, The evidence before this court shows that, in fact, the case against this appellant has grown progressively stronger. Now that to me seems a bit of a strange request on Hassett's behalf. If DNA tests had proved conclusive enough to get a 3,200 to 1 result, and then a 12,000 to 1 result back then, then advancements over seven years would be much more likely to only further pinpoint him as Candice's killer, wouldn't they? Prick. Plus, there was also the testimony of a fellow prisoner, who alleged that Hassett had confessed to Candice's murder while still imprisoned in Wakefield for the Tamworth sex attack in 1991, and had boasted about it even, although it played down the crime's premeditation. Hassett claimed the unlikely story that Candice had been accidentally strangled whilst he was removing her clothing for sex. He didn't give any explanation as to why you would need to remove shoelaces for sex, nor how the said shoelace would then find itself around someone's neck. 
he also didn't explain why a barely pubescent young girl would agree to consensual sex with an older man that she'd never met. His conviction was upheld, unsurprisingly, but by 2006 his minimum tariff was up and he could have been actively seeking parole. By 2015, Hassett was still incarcerated as a Category A prisoner and launched an appeal at the High Court to challenge the Category A review team refusal on the 1st of October 2014 to allow him in an oral hearing to determine his continued need to be held in Category A status. At a hearing on the 14th of October 2015, presiding Mrs Justice McGowan referred to the fact that Hassett had previously been convicted of a number of other violent sexual offences against women and children, crimes which included kidnapping and assaulting a 28-year-old woman with mental health issues at knife point and abducting a 14-year-old girl on her way home from school, then committing buggery and indecent assault upon her. The judge also told the High Court that it was difficult to see what Hassett could have contributed to the debate over his categorisation. She observed, He would no doubt have expressed a genuine willingness to cooperate fully in future work. The issue to be determined was not his willingness to cooperate in the future, but whether he was currently less of a risk if at large. It must be remembered that this is someone who still denies having committed the index offences. The judge acknowledged that Hassett had served a very long time already and the minimum tariff portion of his sentence had expired long ago. However, she ruled that the length an individual has served cannot be determinative and therefore it was not unreasonable that Hassett was refused an oral hearing before the Category A review team. She then refused accordingly that the claim must fail. Do not pass go, do not collect £200 Hassett. He then took this decision to the Court of Appeal, where presiding Lady Justice Black, Lord Justice Sales and Lord Justice Moylan heard the case in May 2017. The court heard how in prison over the years Hassett had completed a number of programmes aimed at addressing his offending behaviour, including the Sex Offenders Treatment Programme and the programme in relation to controlling anger and learning to manage it, CALM. Two reports made by separate psychologists about Hassett had been included in the dossier for the 2014 review decision, and whilst they recognised some positive elements in his case, negative elements were also highlighted. One report by forensic psychologist Gemma Took claimed it was particularly challenging to accurately assess Hassett's understanding of the work that he's engaged in, and that he had difficulty in each programme expressing his thoughts particularly his sexual ones. It was also stressed that Hassett did not acknowledge a preoccupation with sex in his offending. The second report, by forensic psychologist Rhys Matthews, reflected some of the same concerns. Although it recommended Hassett would benefit from practising self-restraint and testing his developed emotional skills at a lower categorization, it quoted, to direct questioning, he has told me that he's committed several sexual offences, but does not see himself as a sexual offender. Although Mr. Hassett in interview denied a sexual interest in young girls, he should be managed on the basis that he has the capacity to be aroused by young girls. Dismissing Hassett's case, Lord Justice Sales said that, despite Hassett's decades behind bars, experts continued to assess him as a high risk of sexual reconviction.
The question to be answered was whether Mr Hassett would present a risk to the public if he escaped from prison. Mr Matthews' report did not suggest that he would not, rather it tended strongly to indicate that he would. That was also the view of the prison psychology service. On the relevant question, therefore, there was no real or significant dispute between the expert psychologists. There was no breach of the common law requirements of fairness in the circumstances of this case. He said the decision to keep Hassett in Category A conditions was lawful, and after considering the arguments with Lady Justice Black and Lord Justice Moylan, he also refused him permission to fight on in the Supreme Court. All three judges agreed and dismissed Hassett's appeal, and he remains in a high-security prison to this day. Now there's precious little available for research about the life and exploits of Patrick Joseph Hassett, but what little there is available to learn about him suggests to me that he is still a total danger to the public, and he's certainly where he should be to this day. Born in 1959, he first came to police attention in 1973, where at age 14 he was found guilty of indecently assaulting two young children, two girls aged just 9 and 7 years old. It's not reported on as to the extent of the punishment that he received for these convictions. Then of course, not only was he a painter and decorator by trade, but we now know he was an established rapist and murderer. Four years afterwards, in October 1982, Hassett kidnapped and assaulted a 28-year-old woman with learning difficulties at knife point after dragging her into his car, a crime for which he received three concurrent 18-month sentences in 1983. Following his release from this, just two months later, Hassett abducted, buggered and indecently assaulted a 14-year-old schoolgirl walking home, crimes that he received concurrent 10-year sentences for in February 1985. He spent less than a month out of prison since that time to this day. So you have to ask yourself, what has this guy done that we don't know about while he was free? If he's already enough of a sexual deviant at age 14 to indecently assault children, what did he do up to Candice's murder and afterwards? We know that he had a hatred of women and at some point he'd been married briefly, although there are no details available about his ex-wife. The fact that police claimed that she was terrified of him and the fact that she was his ex-wife suggests that he probably wasn't partner of the year. Yet he seemed to be popular with women due to his dark hair and good looks. Photographs of him taken around the time show him to bear an uncanny resemblance to another monster who was considered good-looking by many, Peter Sutcliffe. And like Sutcliffe, Hassett had a dark side to him when it came to women. Speaking after the 1992 Birmingham Crown Court case, Pamela Bradbury, the ex-girlfriend who'd gone to police so many years before, described Hassett as a Jekyll and Hyde character. He could be a very nice person, but it was as though he had two personalities. I think I had a lucky escape, because he could have easily have killed me. I'd known him for a couple of years, and although we were not actually boyfriend and girlfriend, he developed a kind of fatal attraction for me. I would look up when we were out with friends and feel his eyes on me. Then he subjected me to a horrible experience and attacked me. I didn't inform the police at the time because I could not believe he'd killed Candice. I knew nothing about his background of sex offences and crime. This case has haunted me. I've carried it with me for 13 years. Following Hassett's conviction, a senior detective had said, 
Hassett flies into uncontrollable rages and enjoys beating girls. It must be something in his psychological makeup. Hassett is a vile beast. He must secretly hate all women. Women we spoke to, like his ex-wife and former girlfriend, were absolutely terrified of him. So the sexual compulsion Hassett had to offend obviously hadn't gone away after being convicted at age 14. Instead it had grown more and more, as we know by 1978 and by the time he was 19, he was prepared to rape and kill. Did he perhaps repeat this a year later with another murder? On the 5th of March 1979, there happened the still as yet unsolved murder of a middle-aged Asian woman named Resham Carr Dillon in the Willenhall area of Birmingham. She was discovered by a 20-year-old son when he returned home from work, bound and gagged with her own clothing at a home in Fisher Street in Willenhall. Resham had been strangled and a ligature made from her own clothing had been left wrapped around her neck. Police said the motive for the murder was unclear, but it was thought that cash and gold had been taken from the property. There's very little information about the crime to research but there are no reports of Resham having been sexually assaulted. Detectives investigating the case interviewed more than 3,000 people in connection with the murder, and hundreds of statements were taken, but Resham's killer has never been brought to justice. Because the house was up for sale at the time, the crime was tentatively linked to a series of rapes that had occurred in the late 1970s in the Birmingham area by an individual police had christened the House for Sale Rapist, although again, no information is available to suggest that Resham's murder was ever confirmed as being linked to the series. Now I'm not of course suggesting that this is definitely Hassett's work, and the nature of the majority of his known crimes suggests that he predominantly targeted young girls as victims, but he was described as having a hatred of all women and a history of violence towards partners had been imprisoned twice for assaults upon women and girls of varying ages, all of this before his murder conviction and he was also known to be a thief, as just mere hours before he raped and murdered Candice, he drunkenly tried to steal a lorry. Who does that for a first offence? Nobody. Surely you start off by shoplifting or burgling. You don't go out and for your first crime say, right I'm nicking that wagon there then. So it's reasonable to suggest that Hassett could be a practised thief and a burglar, as well as the rapist and murderer that he already was by then. Willenhall is just 11 miles from Hassett's stomping grounds and the scene of Candice's murder and Resham was strangled with her own clothing. Food for thought? I certainly think so because I believe Hassett to be a very good person of interest in the case. There's also a tentative but curious connection with John Canaan here, the subject of the two-part series finale from last series of the show. For many years until DNA testing was able to prove otherwise, Canaan was a firm suspect in the murder of Candice Williams, following his imprisonment for an appalling sex attack in 1981. Full details of Canaan's crimes can be found in the episode Mr Kipper Part 2, Dead Woman's Ditch, the previous series, series finale. But as mentioned and recapped here, Canaan is also strongly suspected of being the house for sale rapist, which of course, I've just said, is tentatively linked to Resham's murder. Of course this is just speculation, Hassett's never been charged with any other crimes, but I think that it stretches credibility that a deviant attacks in 1973, then does nothing at all for five years, then rapes and kills, 
then does nothing again until 1982, attacks someone at knife point, is nicked, imprisoned and released, then attacks again two months later. A full account of his movements in the intervening period to liberty before his incarcerations would be well worth a study, locations where he's lived or worked, because there will be undoubtedly other crimes committed by this guy. But since he's continued to deny his involvement in Candice's murder to this day, even in the face of such overwhelming forensic evidence proving what a lying, unaccepting, cowardly bastard that he is, Hassett will never speak about these crimes, and likely the extent of his offending will never be known. And therefore, because he continues to deny his culpability, an account of the events leading to the death of Candice Williams can only be estimated at. At his trial in 1992, the prosecution led by Richard Wakeley QC alleged that the course of events was as follows. Sometime after leaving the park following the row, Candice was intercepted by Hassett somewhere near the Golden Cross grocery store. Wound up after his arrest, he spotted the young girl and made a beeline for her. He may have chatted her up, for want of a better phrase, flattered her and told her how attractive she was. It may have appealed to the young girl. She may have indeed been flattered and taken in by the attentions of an older man. After all, how many teenage girls are taken in by the thought of having an older boyfriend? It's like a status symbol, isn't it? Ladies, I'm sure many of you listening had the same thoughts and did the same things as a teenager. My fella's got a car and we hang out by McDonald's, revving it, that kind of thing. So this may sadly have been the highlight of a rubbish day in what must have been a sad and hard few weeks for poor Candice. So she probably didn't think of any threat from the man. Perhaps she'd even seen him around before. Indeed, it seemed likely that she felt comfortable enough to hang about with him and accept his offer of a peach, which he went and bought for the pair from the shop. So she may have been attracted to him and may have willingly accepted his offer to go somewhere private nearby, where she thought they may indulge in a bit of heavy petting. It was alleged at Hassett's trial that he may have even enticed her to go with him to the top of the block of flats with a promise of money if she masturbated him, although this was of course denied. I don't know the reasoning behind suggesting this. It is of course possible, however, but I don't think it's a very nice testament to Candice's memory. Either way, Candice most likely accompanied him to Riley House of her own free will. No screams or sounds of a struggle were heard, and it would be difficult to force a struggling girl either into a lift in silence or up 11 flights of stairs without being seen or heard. Once in private at the top of the block, Hassett's sexual urges took over, and he brutally and violently raped Candice, forcing a skirt into her mouth to stifle any screams. Hassett then callously strangled the young girl, not once, but with two different ligatures, to make sure that she was dead and couldn't identify him. Can you believe how someone can be so callous and chilling? He then left her body there and fled, taking Candice's underwear with him, possibly with the intention of keeping it as a trophy, but more likely using it to clean himself up, before discarding part of it on the 8th floor stairwell, where her knickers were discovered early the next morning. Her underslip was discovered in bushes nearby to Riley House, discarded like a piece of rubbish. When his killing high had gone, Hassett then realised that due to his previous record of sexual offending, and the fact that he lived in the local area, police would soon be coming to speak to him, so he went and leaned on Pamela Bradbury to give him an alibi if they spoke to her. 
She said that she wouldn't lie for him, despite her being afraid of him. Two days prior to the murder, he had beaten seven bells out of her. This is the kind of lovely bloke that Hassett is. Yet she couldn't believe that he was a rapist and killer, and in the event, police never came to see her, and they accepted Hassett's alibi when they questioned him, albeit vague, for more than 18 months. During this time, he had 18 months to feel more and more secure that he'd gotten away with murder, and even when he was arrested and questioned in 1980, he stuck to his story and was released. His next known attack he wasn't as lucky at, however, and served more than a year's imprisonment for this. Two months later, his compulsion to rape and indecently assault had again overcome him after being imprisoned for a year, and he struck again in a horrific assault. Thankfully, following this crime, he was caught immediately and imprisoned for a longer term, and indeed was to spend less than a month at liberty ever since his arrest for that crime so many years ago to this day. The jury accepted that this was the most likely course of events and found Hassett guilty, taking a monster off the streets. And monster is a very, very good word to describe Patrick Joseph Hassett. The crimes of his that are known are each vile and revolting and have countlessly affected and ruined many people's lives, not just for his victims, but for their families as well. I hope that each and every single one of them take comfort in the times that Hassett's appeals have been denied for good and valid reasons and that he remains in prison for a lot longer to come, still deluding himself that he should be free. You should be bloody dead, not free. Don't you agree that this is a horrific case? A poor young girl walking home, intercepted by a predator charming on the outside, but a sexual deviant itching to rape and kill that day to go on to commit who knows how many more attacks, and to not show a single shred of remorse or acceptance for the murder of Candice Williams and the lifetime of suffering that he subjected her family to. I'm in no doubt if he were given any liberty, he would attack again. After so many years, the compulsion to would be too much for him to resist. There isn't enough space on this earth for scum who commits such horrific crimes as that in my opinion. And if there is a hell, then when you get there, Hassett, I hope the place there that you've earned makes you suffer like women have suffered at your hands. I hope then that you found Candice's story informative and interesting. I found it a very sad crime, and I hate the thought of a young girl lying in a grave somewhere with the person who put her there not facing justice for many years. I found that incredibly sad. My heart went out to a family that had already had a massive hole ripped in it just two months before and were maybe just starting to get some normality back when it was shattered again. No one should be forgotten is the maxim for this show and I'm glad that Candice wasn't, even if it did take years and the miracle of DNA profiling. So what do you think then guys? Is Hassett responsible for other murders? Should he, after serving 26 plus years of his life sentence, be recategorised? And looking at his picture, is he a dead ringer for Peter Sutcliffe or what? You know by now, I hope, where to air your views. In the usual thread, in the usual spot, in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group, which is now actually over a thousand members strong. Fantastic that, isn't it? I'd love you all to come and join in with the regulars who post there. Or you can get in touch with me through the usual social media links, all with the episode show notes as ever, if you aren't already connected with me and should you wish to. 
Also, there is the Patreon link to the show, which of course, if you'd like to be a supporter, gives you a choice of tiers and goodies, including access to up to now 10 bonus episodes of the podcast, with a new bonus episode released on the first of each month, all for less than it costs to steal two supermarket trolleys. Thanks as ever all for joining me this week. When I was writing this episode, I felt like I was proper back to match fitness, shall we say, after the break. It's good to be back, and I shall be back again next week with another tale, which I hope you can all join me for. I look forward to it. Until then, as ever, this is Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all happy and safe times, and I shall catch you soon. Cheers all, take care, and goodbye for now.